1: One of our themes over the last few weeks has been this idea of grasping the source and core of our dissatisfaction with life. Those ideas that we cling to. Either we, when I say cling, we either want more or less. Either way, it's clinging. It's clinging to that thing we identify, or clinging to something opposite of what we, or something else other than what we have identified. That's still clinging. And that grasping <clears throat> sends us for a ride every time. Uh, but unlike a roller coaster that, that kind of stops and you can get off the ride, and then if you feel like it, you can get back on, this one doesn't end well. It always seems to end in kind of a, a, a disaster of some, some sort. And one of the things that energetically was very interesting, last time we met, we were talking about this idea of giving so that we could feel Better. And then I, of course, in my um, uh, limited skill as a teacher, said, okay, well, you know that that's going to lead you to disaster because it's still clinging. And then the whole room, it was kind of fun, actually, for me to witness from here. It's kind of like, whoa, whoa, you know, what the heck are you? It was very interesting. And while it wasn't that obvious, it was quite subtle. There was definitely, definitely a shift in the room. (laughs) Yes. So, <laughs> I wanted to address it uh, and kind of continue on from there in tonight's uh, tonight's discussion, but I wanted to begin with a, a little story uh, for those of you who have been uh, keeping track of where we're going. This was actually quite beautiful, a beautiful interchange, I'll n- never forget it, um, did not occur actually. In this particular setting, however, this was one of my earlier exchanges. Rather marvelous, marvelous woman. This will be quite quick. At one point, I was made aware of how strongly a particular lady felt about getting thank you notes. It was around the holidays, and she brought up the issue of manners and how important it is for kids to learn them. I happen to agree that manners and written expressions of gratitude are important ways for us to show how we care about other people and their efforts of kindness. But I was most interested in the lady's personal sense of being slighted after not getting what she wanted after her acts of generosity. So when you didn't get the thank you note for your grandson excuse me, from your grandson. You felt let down, I asked. Of course, she said. I felt let down by my daughter for not teaching him how to write notes like I'd taught her to do when she was young. And when I don't get the slightest recognition for a gift, it makes me not want to give as much in the future. I could tell this was important to her. The script, in other words, that her ego was delivering so eloquently on her stage of mind came from a very deep place, "'So where's the grasping in all of this for you?' I asked. She paused, looked at the floor for a moment, and then took a very deep breath. Her lower lip quivered slightly, and she said, "'I want to feel love reflected back to me when I give it. I guess I'm attached to that feeling. I always seem to want more of it. Or maybe I want to avoid feeling unloved. I don't know.' I sat silently looking at her. "'I guess,' she said slowly, that's pretty much my small self running amuck, isn't it? She smiled. When I look at it now, it seems that expectation is always in there when I offer gifts. I always want to get something back. And that's not giving, is it? Sure it is. It's just that it's partial giving rather than complete giving, I said. It's negotiation, she said, eyes wide. You think? I asked her, knowing that she was uncovering a great insight yes and negotiation is like a cooperative way of grasping she paused then after a moment she nodded saying my small self seems to need them to show their love for me in a certain way her gaze then met mine she said can't get more egotistical than that she was right you can't get more egotistical than that And so what we're going to practice tonight is this idea of truly looking at what it is that we are trying to move toward and away from. This lady was clearly, was clearly looking to move toward a greater sense of appreciation. She wanted people to move toward her, and what ensued was this dance that was about control and manipulation. It wasn't about flow. So for us tonight, in a very, very careful and tender and kind, generous way, can you just simply be here? Can you give up whatever idea you might have about what enlightenment is, what it looks like, smells like, tastes like, what it should be like? Can you give up just for a moment what your wants and desires are clinging to? Can you really take stock of what's going on right now Can you get your bearings as to where you are in this process of awakening right now and be right there with it, with your full attention, without judgment? Can you just simply be here now? There's a teacher who once said, you can't want awakening once you're awake you can't want awakening once you're awake in other words the you that wants enlightenment won't ever become enlightened the you that is watching the thing it thinks is a you will never become enlightened either in other words enlightenment or awakening is before all befores awakening is prior immediately prior to everything you could possibly think of or feel Letting the fullness of that statement in can uh, really rock our worlds. At least that's the intent. Because we tend to look at enlightenment or awakening as something we are going after. That the desire for awakening actually leads us to something. But actually, it leads us nowhere In the most profound sense, a great thing for you to think about, for any of us to think about, is: Well, what would what would enlightenment give me? You can ask this of yourself: What would enlightenment give me? What would awakening truly give to me? the more we explore that, the more we recognize it gives us absolutely nothing. Once again, in the most profound sense of no thing. It's prior to all priors, before all befores. and we don't operate in the you know, real world, the phenomenal world, we don't operate in that place of, you know, what is before all befores, what is prior to all priors, what is prior to this thought, what is... We tend not to be there. We tend to actually, on the other hand, go with whatever is going on and we become deeply reactive to a world that is constantly feeling like a threat and it's either kind of a subtle series of threats or an overt extreme set of threats that are being tossed our way all the time. That's typically the way we go about our life. And as a result, we are always kind of, if you will, off-center. Always wobbling. We're never still. But at stillness, we start recognizing the utter simplicity of this idea of awakening being what is before all befores. It is this immediate moment. <laughs> and you can't really have desire for this immediate moment any more than any of us right now could desire our ears. You know, I want my ears. Okay, well, you've got them. Yeah, but I really want them. Okay. And so we go into that confused state of, why is it that I can't get my ears? It's already there. It is what, It's a matter of fact, in enlightenment awakening is something that you you can never not already have. There's all sorts of stuff that can get in the way of its full expression. There's all sorts of stuff that can layer on top of that radiance. But it's right here, right now, with each and every single one of us in total fullness. And we can get to that space by recognizing how important it is To let it through us. This may sound yet again kind of paradoxical, but when we allow the desire for awakening to really, really, really open in us, it subsumes all other desires. The desire for freedom sound like Braveheart freedom a desire for freedom okay that desire is critical you gotta want this however that can destroy our search it can minimize our search if what we want is a big story in other words the wanting or the desire itself is never a problem Desire is just desire. It's this white hot fire. Okay? But when it's desire and then affiliated towards something very, very, very specific, which is awakening, and you have this whole beautiful picture of what awakening is, I want that. That's a problem. Because what we've done is we've created an attachment around a mind-created object that has precisely nothing to do with awakening. It's just our image of awakening. Awakening itself is prior to that. It is before whatever that imagined image is. (coughs) So, allowing for that desire for awakening to be huge. Allowing for that desire for freedom to be huge is marvelous. As long as the image of freedom or the image of awakening has been surrendered totally. Once you can do this, you can start to see that there is nothing there. Paradoxically, that nothingness is totally full. It is totally rich. It is. Uh, no words. <laughs> Poets can sometimes get pretty close to it. Some sutras do a fairly good job of kind of dancing around it, but we actually. Uh, what is it? It's not an it. It's the is prior to the it. It's at the core of that desire. It's not small, it's huge. And so I wanted to talk very specifically about some, a very important part of the teaching that I, th- I have watched really carry people quite a, a, a long way very quickly when they can start to uh, understand the implications of what we call near enemies. Okay? And this really relates to what we were talking about p- before Uh, in relationship to um, giving for the sake of getting something, giving because it makes us feel good. What we really want to do is try to get to what's before all that. And so we can start to see how our egos or small selves can create circumstances that prevent this ultimate life, as I sometimes call it, from unfolding. This won't take too long, but I do want to just uh, touch on this quite briefly and see where where it takes us. Whenever feelings, I say here, whenever feelings are actually rooted in an egoic desire, they can become disguised versions of what we might ordinarily see as pure and wholesome. The Buddhist tradition calls these disguised expressions near enemies. The near enemy of true love, for instance is conditional love. The near enemy of true compassion is pity. The near enemy of sympathetic joy is comparison. And the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Becoming aware of near enemies can be a challenge since for so many of us we operate in this space of subtlety without even knowing it. In other words, a near enemy, you guys, is any activity that still posits, it might be very generous to the mind, but it actually positions us as separate from others. And when we start recognizing the before all befores, the prior to all priors, we start recognizing that there is no in here and out there. There just is this open oneness of all things. I sometimes call it the deep singularity. As an example, ego separates us from our boundless nature when instead of experiencing an unadulterated sense of compassion for a person, we instead feel the near enemy of pity for them. Consider a friend who has gone through a tragedy. It is normal to feel pity for them. You are sorry for their loss, but at the same time, there is something that is glad this loss was something that you didn't have to endure. Your friend's experience of tragedy is sensed as being separate from your not-so-tragic experience, which allows you to feel sorry for them. In the space between you and them, the ego still manages to stay in charge, allowing for pity to arise. Put another way, pity can only exist if we attach to the sense that someone else is having a bad experience, while we are not. The implications for this are huge because it means that they are struggling and I am not, so I'll feel sorry for them. That separation right there that allows for me to feel sorry for them, even though feeling sympathy for somebody or empathy for somebody is very natural for a good person, the space between right there is the sum total of human suffering. It's a very, very subtle And indeed, rich, complex teaching. But everyone in this room is ready for this. (laughs) Understanding that pity, or when you feel sorry for someone else, is delusion. Opening to what is true, to what is prior to all priors and before all befores, allows us not only to feel pity, but this massive connection with that person's pain It allows us to empathize beyond putting ourselves in their experience. It actually senses from this big self-awareness that this is all happening within. This is part of me. Their pain is my pain. And by extension, their success is my success. This creates, it has a tenderizing effect on our hearts and our minds it softens them both in a very very beautiful way if we can allow this this in when awakening spawns a boundless connection to all beings another's pain is no longer experienced as being separate from our own when we realize our connectivity to everyone we see that instead of pity arising compassion springs forth effortlessly from all of our activity Albert Schweitzer says along these lines, until he extends his circle of compassion to include all living things, man will not himself find peace. Sure. Yeah. Until he extends his circle of compassion, writes Albert Schweitzer, to include all living things, man will not himself find peace. And we find this peace. And we are then able to offer this compassion when we recognize that which is prior to everything. Put another way, I'll just watch my emphasis here, listen from emphasis, my emphasis. It's by recognizing what is prior to everything, what is prior to all things. What is prior to this very thought? What is prior to this feeling? What is prior to this desire? What is prior? Okay, and we start beginning to uncover this divine source. And that divine source is a limitless source, it is boundless and it is free in more ways than one. Okay, free in that it is totally open. And free in that it is perfectly 100% still. And yet, it is the source of our playfulness. It's the source of our smile. And it's the source of our tears. And it won't cost you anything more than everything. That white hot fire of desire must on some level start to fuel itself through our experience. You have to want this as long as you don't attach to what the this means. You have to allow for kind of a let's get serious. Let's have fun along the way. Let's get serious about this. And it tends to work. It's really amazing. It's a mystery. Absolute mystery. I gave you a lot, so I want to give you some space for um, Q&A. I was going to group up but I think I would rather, let, let's let see where the Q&A goes, if that's okay with you. And if it goes nowhere, then we'll maybe group up. But Yeah.
0: So can you talk a little bit about what might be some ways that you would know that your desire hasn't hooked itself around some more conceptualized idea of what you're desiring and that you're just fueling your practice from the place that you just said. I guess the desire to end all desires and that's it. As opposed to some striving towards some goal. That it, right. What, what would you say would be things that would let you know I'm um, off the mark here a little bit. Well,
1: Well, I would start by saying whenever your desire is to end all desires you're off the mark. Mm-hmm. Because the minute you stop desiring water when you're thirsty or food when you're hungry, really bad things happen, as you might imagine. It's a horrible, horrible misstep that lots of people make. They, seekers, if you think about it, what is a seeker? Seeking. A seeker, rather than being a finder, a seeker is always on the move, looking for something other than what is. Okay. And so what they want to do is they want to, you know, their, their desire is to end, like you said, all desires. Well, instead of ending all desires, desires are perfectly normal, perfectly natural, and can be a marvelous celebration of life, as long as the object of that desire is seen for what it is, which is nothing other than an extension of who and what we are. So, what does that do to desire when you start recognizing that that object of desire is something you've had all along within? There's no
0: point in
1: desiring it. There's no point in desiring that thing. But the desire itself, following that desire to its object, is a red carpet. So, desire can be very, very useful. Very useful. In this as a matter of fact, without desire, this work uh I think gets really, really confused. I think the path gets swirly. Yeah.
0: There needs to be a motivation to keep.: Yeah.: practicing.
1: Exactly, And usually where this will go. And I try really hard to, like, hammer you guys with this one so you feel encouraged. Especially, uh, it was v- really beautiful as I was looking uh, at you guys, as everybody was saying their name and so forth. We have a lot of very experienced meditators in here tonight. And um, I, I really changed what I was going to talk about <laughs> because I, I wanted to uh, lean in a little bit. Because this idea of of the red carpet, you know is uh, i think i think unbelievably it's unbelievably important to want this stuff as long as this stuff you can let go of let that wanting fuel let let it burn okay and also let it take you right to what it is that you want study what it is that you want with your full heart and full mind and you'll see that there's nothing really there it's like if I were to ask you right now, Dan, what is it that is asking this question? And where would I find it?
0: I, I can't find it. Right. But, but still, there's the, the needing to take the next step on the path, the needing to come back, the needing to keep practicing. That's still there. Right. And... I guess my original question was is that easily gets hooked mm-hmm. to, well, I need to do this and I need to do that and there's, there's not there's ten steps ahead yes. as opposed to the next step on the path and just going with the, the desired one step at a time.
1: Your, your metaphor is perfect because what you're asking for is how where do I move to become still
0: Right, <laughs> <laughs> the place is stillness itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: I, I couldn't have said it any better, pal. I mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's it's you cannot yell to quiet things down.
0: Right.
1: Now, a yell might create an opportunity for silence to ensue. Okay. A move. Might create an opportunity for that aha moment of, oh, no movement. It's prior to the movement. It's prior to freedom, true freedom, is prior to my sense of what freedom is. My sense of what freedom is is small. What is prior to that sense of freedom is unbelievably infinite in its scope and nature. And free. <laughs> so the step actually isn't out, it's not even in, it's right there. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, just Jennifer. Nice to see you, by the way. Mm-hmm. Where does the concept of enough fit into all? This? The other question was, where does the concept of enough fit into all this? Help me with your question a little bit more, well, if you could. Just talk talk about what what what's if you if you don't mind.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, they, they focus on you know I have enough, you know that I'm not wanting of anything, I'm not needing of anything, you know what I have here, wherever here is, you know is enough. But doesn't that kind of negate that desiring that you're talking about? If you're if you're satisfied with what you have, or is that?
1: Do you desire satisfaction? Do you desire that sense of enough? Is there a desire that arises within you, within the thing we call you? Is there a desire that arises for enough?
0: Well, doesn't that go back and
1: forth, though? Sure, sure, but just stick with me. Is there a desire that arises, just, you can go yes or no if you feel like it. Is there a desire that arises for there to be some sense of, I'm going to change the word from enough, and I'm going to use a synonym? Is there a desire... That arises for peace? Yes. Okay. Follow that desire. What's prior to that desire? What is before that desire arises? What is the source of that desire? The I will never know. Okay. Okay? But there is a really clear sense when we start playing with that in our mind. Because our mind will get locked on that one. It's a, uh, 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 you know, right? Right. And so what happens is it keeps stopping, right? And guess what that is? Guess what that true stopping is? Truly stopping is that peace. Okay? So does the desire lead us right back to the source of the desire? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the desire itself is seen through. There's not a desire for something other than what is. We start to redefine and re quantify and recalibrate what desire is. Desire itself is this beautiful shimmer, energetic burst of wonder and awe. It's the good kind of shock and awe. and it stops us in our tracks. So then, enough
0: and
1: peace. I think so. But what do I know?
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Play with that. Just play with that. I think that's really 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 excellent of you to just kind of enough at peace. Peace is the it's the substrate of it. Uh, all things. It's you know, it's what gives birth. Peace is what gives birth to all things. It's peace another way of saying peace is stillness another way of saying stillness is enough okay (laughs) yeah so do I understand you to say that desire comes before all else nope no What's prior to desire? I think we just said we didn't
0: know.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. That which is prior to desire, and the language gets funky here, but that which is prior to desire is enough. Okay. When there's a sense that there's not enough of something, desire is born Okay? And it begins to take on, we can actually feel it. And the desire sometimes is, is, is a confused, uh, uh, you know, it's like sometimes you can think of desire as like a, a shotgun, just spraying out buckshot wherever it can to see if it can hit something. It's not sure what it, what it wants. Sometimes it's very specific. Okay? In either case, desire shows up as going somewhere other than where we are. And I'm arguing that go ahead, let that, let that energy fly. But be really clear about what it is that you are desiring. Do not allow the shotgun approach to, to I mean, get really, really clear. And this is where meditation is so helpful. It takes that, that scattershot approach and starts to narrow it. And then when we start seeing that we desire something other than what is, we can start then unpacking, uncovering, uh, uh, unraveling what has heretofore seemed like this Gordian Knot. We become Alexander and we slice right through it.
0: So I think what
1: comes before desire is a sense of lack. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so prior, so immediately prior to that then would be what? What's prior to the sense of lack? Mm-hmm. Right. But I don't know how you get from nothingness to the sense of lacking. Yeah, it's called delusion. Okay? So, so actually, I mean, here again, I mean, you said this beautifully. I mean, you just described our suffering. We go from this place of primordial purity, right, into <gasps> I'm incomplete. Yeah, this. <laughs> <laughs> I am incomplete. Right, right. And that happens when we're about two years old. Um, perhaps even earlier in some, in some ways, but you talk to a developmental psychologist and they'll say right at that, at that point of the, the birth of the scaffolding of ego. Okay? Prior to that, everything was totally egoic in that everything was seen as an extension of this me, but it wasn't an awakened extension of me. It didn't have the maturity of a a life before it. Um, It is pre-conscious, not trans-conscious, to get technical about it. And so so what happens, though, is that we tend to create this sense of self. That is really important in this process. You have to have a sense of self in order to let go of the sense of self. It's very hard to awaken to the truth beyond name and form when in fact we are not dealing with the scaffolding of a self that's that's a psychotic person suddenly you know thinking that they are awake but they're still really wrapped in mind instead of what's prior to mind what's prior to all priors and before all befores so the reason i
0: asked
1: yes Good. Oh, isn't desire fun? Sometimes. sometimes it's not not, I'm not talking about desiring something specific. I'm talking about the desire itself. Where it starts to hurt is when we desire something else. So, you talking about libido? Uh, libido, sex drive, for instance, it's a great example. Sex drive is absolutely a thrill ride, it's one of the great things about being a human being. We actually have this amazingly energetic, powerful surge of life force, right? Now, when that surge is directed at someone or some object, or you get the idea, boy, that's dangerous. Because what happens then is we create a whole story around that object. She's the one who's going to make me better off than I am now. Or, if only I could have him. Right? Which is exactly why, you know, one of the the great precepts in this practice is to not misuse our sexuality. It's such a huge force. Now, our sex, sex drive and sexuality in general, there's nothing wrong with that at all. When it's directed towards something... Other than or when it's direct when 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 um, orgasm becomes this this compelling compulsion that's problematic because it's it's as if we are in that space you talked about so nicely we're coming at life from a position of lack and this will somehow fulfill it even though it may only be temporary. So we can get at the core. This is why celibacy for monks, I think, can be very valuable, especially for people who are, you know, who are doing you know, Buddhist practice, like they're in a practice period or something like that. I mean, this is really, really cool stuff. You start, you start facing that. You start recognizing this immense power of sexuality and then not doing anything about it. It allows us to kind of see through. It allows us to see prior to that desire and it allows us to see that what we have attached that desire to is illusory it's a mind created story playing itself out on the stage of mind that's all now does this mean you shouldn't have sex no I actually am very much in favor of people (laughs) having sex I think that's a I think it's a good thing but I think it's especially cool when it's sacred when it's a sacred expression of what is good, true, and beautiful within you and within another person. And it's not cheapened. Does it mean you have to be married? No, I don't buy that personally. My daughter, on the other hand, will not have sex till she's 44 years old. I'm getting a shotgun. That's when scattershot can be actually very useful. <laughs> yeah, no attachment at all. They're just... <laughs> She, she, I'm sure she will. Uh, Anyway, Um, I think it's a great place to end now that I've talked about buying a shotgun. I've pretty much, I've ruined my credibility as a peaceful teacher, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming, guys. Appreciate it.